Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to a special bonus edition of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. Ordinarily, in this podcast, I tend to interview people who know everything there is to know about an interesting subject. But on this occasion, I decided to have a conversation with my friend Jason Pack about Yemen. We've both spent time there, we've both worked there, we've both tried to get our heads around this subject. So it's more of a two-way discussion. The other thing about this episode is that it's a joint effort with Jason's Disorder podcast. So you'll be able to catch a similar version of this on his pod as well as mine. But in case you think I'm cheating you out of a regular episode, I can assure you that I have a really fascinating interview with Dr. Lisa Brumat about Argentina's eccentric new president, Javier Millet, and that will come out in the next few days. So think of this as a little freebie to tide you over for the weekend. Here's Jason. So Arthur, how would you explain to someone who's just coming new and fresh to this crisis, what in the world is happening in Yemen and in the Red Sea region? Obviously, a lot of people have probably just started to think about Yemen or certainly the context of Yemen affecting the world outside Yemen really in the last few weeks. We've seen the so-called Houthi rebels fire at shipping going through the Red Sea. That is one of the most important arteries of global trade. Of course, it's the route up to the Suez Canal. It connects Europe and Asia. And as a result of that, a lot of shipping is now having to circumnavigate Africa, adding to times, increasing inflation and so on. So what is going on here? Well, to understand this question, we really need to understand what's been happening in Yemen, over the last 10 years, but maybe over the last 1500 years, depending on uh, where you want to start that question, and really have a bit of an understanding about who are these so-called Houthi rebels. So where shall I start, Jason? I think it's important to divide those things into maybe two baskets, which we can dissect rather than jumbling all at once. Yes, the historical resonance, who are the Houthis? What is Zaydi Islam? 
why is Yemen such a ungovernable place, kind of like the Afghanistan of the Arab world? That's one historical basket, which I'd like us maybe to tackle later. Because then there's the question of just why is shipping in the Red Sea important? And how is it that a quasi non-state, quasi state actor in one of the poorest and most unlinked to the global economy parts of the world can all of a sudden disrupt global shipping, make the prices of Brent crude spike and affect things so profoundly? Well, to answer that question more directly and specifically talking about shipping, if anyone looks at the map of the Red Sea, what you see is that it comes to a very narrow point at the southern point of the Red Sea before it opens up into the Gulf of Aden. And that gap is called the Bab al-Mandab. It is the point where a little bit of Yemen sticks out towards the coast of Africa. And that is effectively a choke point. The Houthi rebels, they have effectively controlled North Yemen. And that is quite a large area of territory, including the coastline there on that eastern side of the Red Sea and the port of Hodeida, which is a very important international port. The Houthis have controlled that territory on and off in different ways, more or less since around 2014. And that is in spite of a major war that has raged in spite of efforts by powerful and wealthy countries such as Saudi Arabia to dislodge them. So the Houthis are very secure in the control of that northern area and of that coastline. And ultimately, international civilian cargo shipping is slow moving. It's easy to hit. It is not equipped with military countermeasures and so on. So if a group such as the Houthis decides it wants to attack that shipping, and I'm sure we can talk about why they might be doing that, it's not hard for them to do so. The question really is, why are they doing this? Why are they doing it now? What, what do they seek to gain from it? And I think, in a way, what's so interesting about this is the way that events in Israel and Palestine, and of course, we've spoken about those before, Jason, how they have intersected with an ongoing civil war in Yemen, but also a major geopolitical struggle that has been unfolding for decades, really, in the Middle East, between different powerful actors, notably Iran and Saudi Arabia, but also, of course, the interests of global powers, such as the US, notably. And the Houthis are in the middle of all of these intersecting questions, and they have decided to exercise their power effectively. And I think that the two baskets we identified are really connected in this point, because Aden and Yemen in general have always been important for global shipping. The reason why the British took over the southern tip of Yemen in the 1830s and held it until really the early 1960s is that when you're going to get to India, you'd like to stop over in this area and refuel. And as soon as the Suez was opened in the 1860s, you really want to control this area, the Babal Mandab, which is where the Red Sea kind of has a choke point before it opens up into the ocean. That hasn't changed. So that geography has always been the same. And in fact, even when shipping was much more primitive and there weren't anti-ship ballistic missiles, you could still use control of the Yemeni coastline to do piracy and menace things. And going back further in time, you know, people may wonder, how did Islam get to Indonesia and Malaysia and all these areas? And this is because 
in the late European Middle Ages, Yemen was a very wealthy part of the world, just as it had been in the Roman Empire because of its trade of frankincense and myrrh and various other commodities. And Yemeni shippers and traders, particularly from the Hadramut region, went to places like Indonesia and Malaysia, and they, through trade, spread Islam, and they were some of the wealthiest merchants in the late European Middle Ages. And that that kind of turns everything on its head, which explains why there are these traditional skyscrapers from the 15th and 16th centuries in Yemen. So as I love to do, Arthur, I've digressed and I've mixed and matched our baskets here. But while we're staying on the non-historical bit, I think the key thing is independent of larger political issues, attacking shipping is a very big deal. And when I think of what is hegemonic ordering, and this is the Disorder podcast, and, and I hearken back to previous times when the globe was more ordered, it used to be that there wasn't the ability to control information or set weights and measures in far-flung territories. You know, the Roman emperor was totally fine with the fact that weights and measures and language and stuff were different in various areas. But what people wanted to do was to make sure that in the main arteries of trade, you wouldn't get murdered and the caravan or the ship couldn't be raided. And if you go back to the second and third British empire, and particularly the role of Britain after the loss of the American colonies, the most important thing was to make sure that the primary routes of trade were open. And what America took over from Britain with the withdrawal from east of Suez was to make sure, particularly, that tankers were not being attacked. And if you look at what Saddam Hussein did in attacking Kuwait and what the Iranian revolutionary regime has done from the 1980s onward, it would only occasion global ordering at the massive scale when shipping was threatened, particularly cargo ships carrying crude oil. I think that's a great point. And I think it's interesting then to try to think about why the Houthis are doing what they're doing at this moment in time, and also what their own calculus is. Now, what the Houthis, their stated aim is an act of solidarity with the Palestinians. They have claimed, completely untruthfully, but they've claimed that they're attacking shipping that is in some way in support of Israel and is helping Israel to carry out its you know, military operations in Gaza. Not true, but you could make an argument, and to be clear, I'm not in any way supporting the Houthis, but you could make the argument that the smooth running of global maritime trade is part of an ordered world in which nation states expect certain norms and practices. And to attack that is in a way to attack the wider kind of architecture of global power. However, I want to be super clear at this point to our listeners that if the Russians made a cyber attack where the internet went down in the home counties in the UK and in the tri-state area around New York, you could make as similar an argument, hey, we've done this in support of the Palestinian people because it is that the American and British consumer and producer can go about his daily life and you know, trade stocks and, and keep the economy open that allows the Israelis to continue their, yeah. their war. In other words, yeah. it's not like this shipping, which goes through Suez and is not stopping in 
even what the Houthis would call occupied Palestine, is in any way more central than, say, the functioning of the internet in sure. London. There are two differences. One is that the Houthis are Arabs, so they have an immediate audience in the Arab world. And the second is that they are taking an action in a geographic region, which, although not adjacent to Israel, is certainly within a kind of regional context. So what the Houthis have done is they have decided to take a stand. And the way they're portraying it is that they're the only people in the Arab world who are taking a firm stand to defend the Palestinians. And they have done something brilliant from their perspective, having been seen by many people in the Arab world as a kind of fringe movement, slightly crazy bunch of Yemenis living in the hills with a slightly obscure version of Islam. They are now at the front rank of the sort of Arab resistance. If you think about every single country in the Arab world, not one single Arab government has taken a concrete action to prevent Israel from doing what it's currently doing, whereas the Houthis have done that. But I think the other thing that the, the analogy I might make with the Houthis, imagine a pop group that's had a very kind of local following and they've done all right and they've played local festivals or whatever, and then they suddenly have a breakout hit. And actually, they don't really know how to deal with this success. And I think it's quite possible that the Houthis haven't really taken on board the seriousness of attacking global maritime trade. They haven't taken on board the degree to which almost every country on planet Earth has an interest in sustaining that. Yes, there are there are moments of high tension in history that we can look at where, for example, the Iranians have attacked tankers and so on. But it is extremely rare to have a fairly indiscriminate attack on civilian global maritime trade, which is what we're now seeing. Arthur, I think that was a good overview in terms of what is happening in the Red Sea and Yemen. You have this movement, the Houthi movement, which goes back to the 1990s and to the split apart of North and South Yemen. It's based in this particular sect of Shia Islam, and they have defeated both the Saudi intervention and the international recognized government to come to dominate an area of Yemen which was always beyond government control, and that's very northern Yemen, particularly around Saada. Now, to catapult themselves to the top table, they're the first Arab movement or quasi-state-like movement in the Arab world to do an action in solidarity with the Palestinians. So let's zoom out and talk a little bit about the players. So we've mentioned these Houthis. The name Houthis is after an individual, Hussein al-Houthi, who led a kind of militia struggle against the Sana'a-based government. And so what I want to ask you is, is this movement a ragtag mafia? Is it a religious movement? Is it one of these standard Arab tribal ethnic solidarity movements? What is the mojo that the Houthi movement has? And, and how is that relevant for what they're doing now? Yeah, it's a great question, Jason. And in trying to answer, I might draw my own time in Yemen. So I was there the first time that this so-called ragtag rebel army took on the Yemeni army, which, you know, Yemen's a poor country, but still, it, you know, it, it had an army that had fought many battles. Yemenis are famously a warrior people. Yeah. And, and it defeated the Yemeni army in the field back in 2004. 
and a lot of people were scratching their heads. Well, we don't even know who these guys are, you know, and how the hell did they do that? And this was at a time when a lot of external focus in Yemen, including that of the British government and certainly the US government, was very focused on Sunni jihadism, on Islamist extremism, on al-Qaeda. And of course, al-Qaeda in Yemen is a story of its own importance, which, you know, became a very powerful franchise, admittedly now less active, but certainly at one time was probably the most active in the world. So the Houthis were at one point a sort of cultural movement. They were rooted in this northern Yemen environment, very rugged environment. They're rooted in the religious traditions of Zaydism. Now, people call it Shia, but it's not the same branch of Shia that the Iranians follow. And in fact, in practical terms, very, very close to what most Yemenis who are not Zaydis, who would call themselves Shafi'i, which is a type of Sunni Muslim, effectively between the two, you would talk to Yemenis and they would kind of say, well, it doesn't make too much difference to me. I can go to either mosque. I'm not that bothered. But in its origin, it was effectively a group that was asserting its cultural and local traditions in the Saada region against Saudi influence and you know interference. And that was normally religious because the Saudis were financing the Salafi Sunni religious movements, and also against the government in Sana'a. So they were kind of against everyone. And I've been up to Sada. It's a place where the mountains are unbelievably rugged. You can see how people who've lived in that area for centuries, millennia, don't have much time for outsiders. It's a kind of classic, you know, mountain mentality that you see. That, I think, is the origin of the Houthi movement. But what it is now is a government of a large part of territory, not the whole country, but a large portion of Yemen. And they've been controlling it. They have government ministries, they have public services, but that they are now acting much more like a highly militarized, rather vicious, certainly undemocratic, but still a a government in, in an Arab state. The Houthis have gone through a similar transition that Hezbollah did in Lebanon of being Mm -hmm. a sub-state, state-like entity, which provides services. I think that it is worth pointing out that Shiism in the Arab world has tended to exist in geographically marginal areas. But for me, I think that the history of Yemeni tribal and solidarity networks is really important, which is that the state has always been hated and not trusted. Yemen has, because the central government is poor and seen as corrupt, it's never had coherent governance. And this makes it very different than anywhere else in the Arabian Peninsula, where where there's more oil, there's more centralization, there are ministries, and those ministries can essentially bribe people with hey, here are some scholarships. Your kids can go study in Europe or, you know, this is the great health care that you can go have in Jordan. The Yemeni government doesn't have that. And hence it is at these local and tribal levels where there's solidarity. And that standing up to the man gets you so many brownie points in that context. Yeah. To stand up to the state and to stand up to the international system, what better than to do to say that you hate Israel and you want to, kill the Zionists and down with the Jews and we support the Palestinians. This is this is the periphery standing up to the man. We're going to stick it to the man. I think it's critical to convey how popular that cause is 
not only in the Arab street in general, but in Yemen and in northern Yemen and in non-urban Yemen, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people have gone to demonstrations in support of the Houthis and have rallied to them militarily because they're bombing random shipping, which is not connected to Israel. But because of the rhetorical implications for Yemeni tribal resonances here. The dynamic of rebellion and reward is the feature of how Yemen has been governed for time immemorial. Because when you have a very weak central state, what you can't do is sort of rely on it to provide a, you know, a highly organized health and transport system. So you end up having a much more transactional relationship. Now, there's a person we haven't mentioned, but is very important in this story is Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was president of Yemen for decades. And he's another person who, in a way, does fit this dynamic. He was a warrior. He was a military commander. He had commanded several armies in battle and in the end died basically fighting a battle. And, and that was, in a way, always the way that he was going to go. The way that he administered Yemen was this sort of constant tug of war that you would have with different regional interest groups that would be loyal to him. But then if they didn't get what they want, they would probably fire a rocket propelled grenade at the local government headquarters. Then the president might, if it was a big enough thing, he would fly to that particular place and hand out largesse, weapons, new trucks, other um, sort of rewards. But effectively, this thing is you reward violence and you reward rebellion. I think that is definitely a feature of how a country like Yemen with a very weak central government has run itself. Um, I think, though, that the Houthi phenomenon, there's something a bit different about it, which is that we've seen it grow over time. You know, it started out as this local sort of regional movement. The Houthis became involved with the wider Arab Spring kind of democratization movement, which was very strong in Yemen in the immediate aftermath of the Arab Spring. And also, at one point, Ali Abdullah Saleh, this former president I mentioned, also allied himself with the Houthis. So what you see now, at its core, it is, yes, still this group that was started by a family called Al-Houthi, but they are much more than that. They have become, through a mixture of kind of ruthless politics, military victory, perhaps fundamentally a kind of um, a fundamentalist approach, they have become rulers of many of the forces that are present on the ground in North Yemen, that themselves are not necessarily classically part of the Houthi Zaidi movement. And that's given them quite a strong power base. And then, of course, building on that, they've also, in more recent years, enjoyed support from Iran, and particularly in the form of, of weapons being supplied to them. I think an important point is that the very rugged nature of Yemen means that they're not going to be militarily defeated. Like no. I was reading an article in the New York Times today about how Kirby, the State Department spokesperson, is like, aha, our airstrikes are already, you know, having an impact on degrading Houthi capacity. And I'm like, I don't buy that because the ability to deter the Houthis, I think they're undeterrable because, you know, the place has already been bombed to the Stone Age by the Saudi Emirati led coalition. That didn't affect anything. Yeah. So you're not going to deter them by bombing them. You know, we're not even going to drop one one hundredth of the bombs on them that the Saudis it's have already true. dropped. Yeah. And then degrading their capabilities. I mean, these are guys who can hang out in caves. And yes, we may we may get some missile launchers. That's great. Do you know what I mean? But you're not going to stop the ability to menace global shipping unless you got every missile launcher. And we can't possibly yeah. blow up every missile launcher. We're not going to kill everyone in 
in the Houthi-controlled areas of northern Yemen. So it is an unwinnable military issue. And I think this is really important to point out. And we're not going to militarily defeat the Houthi movement with a few airstrikes. And that's not what's going to prevent them from disrupting global shipping. What I want to get at, because you know, you're the one with the Anglo-American diplomatic experience that I, that I don't have. How do we think about global ordering when we're going up against an enemy that you can't possibly defeat militarily? Like, what can the American and British strategists really hope to achieve? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. What's very interesting is because we talked a bit about the Saudis, And you end up wondering whether we, the US and UK, will perhaps somewhat unwillingly get dragged into a version of what happened with their own Yemen intervention. So one is, I hope sincerely, because I I had and I continue to have strong views about, I think that the Saudis committed war crimes in that escapade. And I think- I mean, there's no doubt, right? I find it impossible for anyone to argue that war crimes were not committed by- either the Saudis or Emiratis in Yemen. It's just a fact. Yeah. So the other thing they ended up doing was making other alliances within the country, which of course is a classic, you know, that's what you you find allies who are with you in your struggle. So the main military opponent on the ground in Yemen, opposed to the Houthis, is the so-called Southern Transitional Council, which is a separatist movement So you have the Houthis controlling North Yemen with an ambition to control all of Yemen. The Southern Transitional Council is a group whose ambition is to recreate what existed prior to 1991, which is when Yemen was two separate countries. And people forget this. Yemen as a single entity is a relatively recent creation. Of course, it has a historic context, but in the kind of modern uh, history of nation states. Yemen does not have a very long history. And that is one of the many factors playing into the weakness of that state. So you have this question where neither Saudi Arabia nor the Emirates were ever pro the separation of North and South Yemen, but they realized that on the ground, the STC, this separatist movement, were one of the more effective military operators. And I just wonder whether we're going to see the UK and the US also understanding that if you want to confront the Houthis, you probably need to be working with those guys and perhaps reluctantly accept that they will grow in their own power and importance in that context. And this is a good example of the difficult choices. You might be the most powerful nation on earth, the US, but you certainly don't want to send your army into Yemen. They can't imagine anything worse. You could carry on bombing Houthi targets. Is that going to affect shipping? Well, maybe 
at the margin. So what are your other options? Well, one option might be to support other entities on the ground that can limit the Houthis' power. I want to get back to this idea of disordering, but just say, as we're throwing out dates in North Yemen and, and South Yemen and Ali Abdullah Saleh, there's such a complexity here. We're going to put a really good article from Time magazine made by history in the show notes, which although I don't agree with the analysis because the author is saying this means that we shouldn't do anything militarily because Yemen is so complex and has repelled outside interventions at all, it's still a great history about Yemen. We're also going to toss in the show notes an excellent article written by Elizabeth Braw, who is a columnist at Foreign Policy and Senior Associate Fellow at the European Leadership Network, where she's talking about the unique role of Britain. This is a rare example where Britain really can be a global leader, Arthur, maybe not doing 50% with the U.S. of the trying to restore order to the maritime space, but maybe 20% and a very meaningful 20% because Britain does punch above its weight, not only in the maritime domain, but particularly in the maritime domain in the Eastern Med, the Red Sea, and the Arabian Gulf area in general. So there is an argument, although there are no good options in terms of deterring the Houthis with Tomahawk missile strikes, obviously you're not going to occupy Yemen, that's a crazy, but some kind of global ordering that deals with shipping needs to happen. And I see an Anglo-American coalition, which gets as many European and East Asian and Latin American and maybe African states on board and Arab Sunni states who are willing to participate. Because this is a great example where we in the kind of ordering game can make clear what the role of having international law and Western coalitions is. The point about seeing the utility of naval power what is naval power for? It is to enable peaceful free trade at a global level, which even for people who are scared of globalization, maybe because they come from a, a leftist perspective, it's still hard to argue with that simple principle. Particularly when it's not a question of how your country does or doesn't do the tariff and the paying of the workers yeah. later, which is really great. I want to pay workers more and have fun humane conditions. It's a question of, should we force them to go five or more thousand kilometers yeah. extra and burn completely unneeded fuel? Yes. There yeah. is no benefit here. Yeah. But I think what is very interesting then is if we look at the role of China here, I wonder whether for China, the existence of some ambiguity on the idea of free maritime global trade is actually relates to their own story. They have, of course, their designs on Taiwan. We're talking just after Taiwan had its election, where China did not get the result it wanted in spite of heavy interference in the politics of Taiwan. And of course, the wider question of the South China Sea, where China makes a, an extravagant territorial claim, which is not recognized by other countries. But then China gets very cross when the navies of, for example, Britain or America say, well, we have a freedom of navigation because this is international water. So I think, is it possible? I think China's immediate motivation is simply to allow the US in particular and other Western powers 
a level of discomfort and it just suits them to see that unfold. But I wonder whether this concept of ambiguity around freedom of navigation is in part because they benefit from that ambiguity in their own backyard. Yes, and I think that this gets at the extent to which the Chinese, when it suits them, are willing to play the role of disordering international power. And as a disorderer, maybe not at the level of Russia or Iran in terms of the commitment to pure disordering, but as a Mm. disordering power, ambiguity around does international law actually function? Can you actually enforce that these are international waters? Is the global maritime environment working? That suits them because then they can use hard power and coercion when it suits them. Now, I don't think we've talked enough about the Israel-Palestine dynamic here because I am a believer that this is just a pretext. Even in Houthi Command Central and Sada, they know that they're not going to cause the Palestinians to get a state by shooting at some tanker ships 2,000 kilometers south of Elat. You know, I, I think they understand that. Yeah, sure. But still, I want to draw on some things that may not be clear to people who haven't followed this for a long time. One is the anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, anti-colonialism dimension of Yemeni politics. It is coming to attention more in the media that, of course, the Houthis' slogan is death to America, death to Israel, and a curse be upon the Jews. Lanak Allah Allah It's important to point out that There were Jews in almost all Arab and Middle Eastern countries, some less so than others. And I want to say from my travels, Yemeni anti-Semitism differs in extent and in virulence from other areas in the Arab world. And I don't think that this is covered enough in terms of why this is resonating. If we go from West to East, the Moroccan Jewish communities, yes, they had Jewish quarters in places like Rabat and Marrakesh, and even in the Atlas Mountains, you'd be in some small town, there's a little Jewish quarter, and the Jews were in certain professions, but there were many of them, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, and the royal court would have relationships with Jewish traders and intellectuals, and you know, not so much anti-Semitism traditionally in a place like Morocco, and certainly not in urban areas where lots of mixing and intermarriage, and Algeria, the situation became more complicated because of the alliance of a lot of Jewish elites with the French colonial grouping. And Libya, that story happens a little bit because of the relationship of the Jews in Tripoli and Benghazi with the Italian colonial power, but centuries of good trade connections. Egypt, again, particularly in Cairo and Alexandria. And in Yemen, the position of the Jews in the last two centuries is that they were unable to integrate into Yemeni life. They didn't even have quarters of the main Yemeni towns. They kind of had to have their own towns. They were isolated. But in the 19th century, you're already having a Yemeni tradition of throwing rocks at Jews who were differentiated in terms of dress. And therefore, although the Jews have really all fled Yemen and were forced out and pushed out with their lands and property confiscated in the 40s and 50s, the tradition of 
virulent anti-Semitism in Yemen is something that has been central to Yemeni politics, you might argue. In other words, a lot of Yemeni talk and Yemeni Twitter and going back to, you know, Nasser's speeches resonating in Yemen in the 60s is a anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish, uniquely Yemeni form of anti-Semitism without any Jews and without any interaction to the Israel-Palestine conflict, that why would a movement in a country where there are almost no Jews, they don't border Israel, they have very little exposure to the Israel-Palestine conflict at all. Do you know what I mean? There's never been a war between Yemen and Israel. Yeah. Why would they have as their slogan, death to America, death to Israel, and a curse upon the Jews? I mean, I think that it's worth kind of unpacking that for people who might not get the psychological space that this occupies. We could also observe, because of course, that famous slogan, which lots of people have now, because of the Houthis taking this action, people are now looking at the Houthis and they're saying, crikey, look at this slogan, it's terrible. It's basically a slogan that was invented in Iran, which the Houthis repurposed. And Iran is another interesting case study of a country that, of course, has an extremely sophisticated historic Jewish community, some of whom were extremely wealthy and influential and powerful. And of course, a tiny community still remains in Iran. Iran historically had somewhat positive relations with Israel. And even after the Iranian revolution, didn't immediately sort of go off Israel and then think things went went sour later. But Iran has no real reason to believe that Israel threatens it. And yet it has almost become the chief antagonist of Israel in the Middle East. So Arthur, you did some interesting work in Yemen. I don't know what you can tell us from those times, but just what was it like being there from, you know, the food to the mountains, to the weather, to the gut? And just could you give some of our listeners a a little bit of the, the flavor? We've talked a bit about the landscape and it's worth anyone who's interested, just type into Google sort of Yemen mountains and you'll just see these amazing pictures. One thing is it is it is not desert. A lot of Yemen has greenery because of the mountainous nature of it, you know, that you get vegetation. So it is it's very different to what people perceive the Arabian Peninsula as being. And in fact, there are rainforests in Yemen. I visited rainforests in Yemen. Amazing. But I think the thing that is really the most striking thing about Yemen is probably the architecture. Because if you visit any country in the Sunni Arab Gulf region these days, you'll see amazing modern architecture. You know, billions are always being thrown at new skyscrapers and so on. But it's quite hard to find historic architecture. And and of course, the history of, of those regions before the oil era is not really in the built environment. Whereas Yemen has ancient cities, ancient cities that are still lived in today as they would have been more or less several hundred years ago. The sorts of cities where there's a wall around the city and at night they close the gate. And and the architecture is stunning. And the craftsmanship, the artistry, all that goes with that, which is ultimately an expression of civilization. And I think that to me was something that I've, I've always held as so important because I think the richness and the complexity of its history and culture is is really something that is utterly remarkable. And and until you've seen it, it's basically unbelievable. Yes, Yemen is a cradle of civilization, which makes it all the more sad given how much civilization that there has been there over the centuries, what has happened to Yemen in the later part of the 20th century and now, because this isn't going to end well for Yemenis, Arthur. And I think this is a great point to pivot. To wrap up, 
how is this all going to play out for the Yemenis? How is this all going to play out for global shipping? And what impact is this little episode maybe going to have on the Israel-Hamas war? I'll try to take some of those questions first and then toss it over to you. So I don't think it's going to end so well for Yemenis. I mean, the Houthis are not really going to be bringing prosperity to northern, let alone the rest of Yemen. They spell fragmentation. And Yemen didn't do so well in the North Yemen, South Yemen period from the 1960s to 1990s. It's relative poverty to the rest of the Arab world increased. Yeah. And I think relative poverty is getting worse. So a lot of the land is used to grow this herb called gut. And this means that productive agricultural land is not used to grow food. And the Houthis are not going to be able to do governance and they're not going to be demanded to to do governance because they say that they're sticking it to the Zionists and the global system. So why do they have to put food on the table? Look, we're fighting this snowball cause. So that's not going to go really well. In terms of the Anglo-American coalition, I do hope that Biden and Sunak give speeches about this and wouldn't it be great to have an international conference to get, you know, the French or the Dutch or or other countries with maritime traditions to participate more. And that could be good. And we could maybe build out some kind of global ordering here. It'd be great if a Latin American or East Asian countries can can join. But certainly the specter in global shipping is that even if there is a drop-off in some of these attacks, they could happen at any time because you know, it's not like the Houthis and this drone technology or missile technology is going anywhere. And then this puts in a real kink in terms of needing to have ships being escorted, having to, you know, have defensive capability right by your tanker ship. This just causes expenses. It's like frictions in global trade. And at a time where global growth is really not doing so hot, I unfortunately see that the more that the disorderers kick up a fuss and the Houthis in China and Russia can be disorderers in this context, I see that benefiting the neo-populists, meaning Trump and the Brexiteers and the Orbans and Gert Wilders of the world. The mere fact that this disordering is going on, it helps hurt the orderers' ability to say, look, we can do coherent ordering, and it helps the disorderers you know, with their propaganda, the system is so broken, tear it all down. That's why when I first saw that the Houthis were making these statements before they were even attacking the shipping, I was like, oh no, this is bad, Arthur, because it then kicks up this negative feedback loop cycle. So I'm I'm pretty down about all of this. And it's not like it's going to hurt Netanyahu. I think it helps Netanyahu. The more that they make crazy statements, the Houthis do, it helps him with his right-wing settler base. Look, it's the, it's the world against us. And it's very, very worrying for kind of centrist orderers like myself, where I want to get Netanyahu out of power. I'd like the Israelis to be scaling back their, their human rights violations and all the things that they're doing, which don't help them. And I don't see how some attacks on Red Sea shipping are going to make them adopt a more coherent policy. And the challenge, you know, we've talked about the limitations of these airstrikes, of what the US and, and its allies can do. But equally, doing nothing feels like it would have been what you're saying that a, a random terror group can divert global shipping. And we just say, oh, well, please don't do that again, please. You know, I mean, that that's not an option, is it? So I think it's a great case study in the limits of power. You know, America is a single global superpower, and yet that power has great limits. 
and its limits are defined by a whole set of factors, internal political factors, economic factors, and so on. But it's a reminder that imperial power can still be limited quite easily by entities that are on themselves are not powerful in any global sense, but that they're, they're able to exercise power in a particular way that has an effect. That was beautifully put. Imperial powers are always able to be curtailed asymmetrically. But I might argue that the very nature of the enduring disorder and 21st century technology allows even weaker powers to more derail things. In other words, all you need is a little drone or a computer and the ability to hack in. North Korea and some Houthis can make a big, big, big disruption. So on this very, very pessimistic note, commenting on our mad, mad, mad world, Arthur, really great to chat with you. And I look forward to talking about things from climate change to the Iowa caucuses to European trade and other matters another time. Absolutely. Thank you, Jason. So thank you for joining me on this special bonus episode. You can make sure you never miss another edition of this podcast by subscribing. And if you're interested in some of the issues, you might want to check out my Substack, where I've written a few things about Yemen in recent weeks, alongside many other topics. Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the fantastic theme tune is by Matty Bembrook. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.